0: When we begin Dharma practice, it seems to be a very effortful, intentional application of some technique in order to achieve some hoped-for, exalted or spiritual state of mind. But for those of us who've been trying that for a while, and there's some momentum to uh, mindfulness, we realize that In spite of all of our efforts, there is a natural unfolding to the heart and wholesome or skillful qualities of mind inevitably arise if we're careful and pay attention. This leads us to conclude that while effort is necessary, being effortful is not. And it's more when we understand that awareness is really a lifestyle that we begin to settle into seeing what a lifestyle of awareness really is like. The qualities of the heart that are activated and developed and brought into balance through all of our practices are called the five spiritual faculties or the five controlling faculties, they're the most predominant players in the development of dharma in our heart. And there are five of them. The first is sada, or faith, confidence, interest. The second is virya, energy, or in our situation we understand it as perseverance. The third is sati, or mindfulness which is really the bare observing, not forgetting or remembering capacity of the mind. The fourth is Samadhi or stability of mind, often translated as concentration. And the fifth is Panya or wisdom, it is the uh, understanding what is skillful, what is a skillful way of viewing experience. And together these, the activity of these five factors of mind, when they're aroused and brought into balance and are actively present in an ongoing way, the result is a life of awareness. And awareness is that ongoing, interested, Observation, recognition, remembering to recognize the present moment experience as it is. The interesting thing about these five faculties, five capacities of mind is that they can only develop gradually, incrementally, and they support one another to to the degree that there is some faith or confidence we're willing to make some effort. To the degree that we make effort, there's more awareness, more mindfulness. The more continuous the mindfulness, the more stable the mind, or the more concentrated, collected the mind is. And when the mind is collected, it sees things in more detail. It understands things more accurately. This wisdom, when recognized, again inspires us with faith to Redouble our effort, and so forth and so on. And in this way, the development of these faculties is causal, sequential, cyclical, and they gradually uh, mature. So, I want to speak about these five faculties of mind uh, tonight because they're active in all of our practice, not just on the cushion, but in our general lifestyle, in all of our civic, social, personal, professional uh, activities, responsibilities. When these factors are present, we're more balanced, we have more understanding, we're more connected with ourselves and others, um, there's a greater sense of well-being. So the first is Sada, usually translated as faith, but it also means assurance, confidence. But it is the kind of experience that comes when we feel inspired. I was living in a commune in central Maine after finishing, after getting out of law school trying to recover my sanity, and uh, we were a collection of Grateful Deadheads and Pink Floydians, uh, nurturing the the magic at the time, and just kind of getting by. And one of the women at the commune uh, picked up this book, Beginning to See, and it was about mindfulness, and in the back it had an address, she wrote to the address, they wrote back and said, by the way, there's an insight or mindfulness retreat going on in Maine right now and uh, in a couple of weeks there's going to be a two week retreat. So she decided to go. I thought she said she was going on something like a holiday, like a cruise on land. And up to that point I didn't know anybody who meditated, I didn't know anything about Buddhism, I had no interest in spiritual life, I had a spiritual life. And, and, <laughs> and, uh, I I, 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 I didn't know what I was getting into, we drove to the site and there we came upon 60 people finishing the last two weeks, about to begin the last two weeks of the first three month retreat that was held in the US. So we walked in on this group of 60 people who were two and a half months into silence and stillness and it looked like, it looked like Night of the Living Dead. (laughs) Nevertheless, we were there, we paid our money, so we uh, settled in and I had no idea what I was doing there. I had no idea what to expect, I didn't know anybody, I didn't know anything about anything. But just like you, you get the precepts and and the refuges and you're into silence and you can't talk to anybody about what's going on. (laughs) And so I sat up in the back, I leaned against the piano for two weeks wondering, what is going on here? And of course the body was in excruciating agony and I was withdrawing from all kinds of things I didn't want to really withdraw from. (laughs) Nevertheless, the mind was a mess. But you know, the Dharma is really magical. If you listen, if you practice, it happens. It takes over. And I came out of that retreat, I didn't know what hit me. Um, Didn't, 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 I mean everything seemed normal. I mean, it was painful, but drove back to the commune. And when we got to the commune, everybody was there. Everything was the same. There was nothing different except everything was different could not see those people, that activity, that lifestyle, in the same way anymore. And I just realized then, wow, something happened. And that was my new inflamed passion in life. Figure out what the heck is going on. A couple of years later I went on staff at the Meditation Center in Massachusetts and on my first day there I was up in the attic insulating the ceiling with Rodney Smith who happened to be on staff also, another teacher in Seattle, and we were having a discussion about Nibbana. Of course I'd I'd done one two-week retreat. (laughs) (laughs) and He reminded me several years ago now that I said to him with utter and absolute conviction, I have no doubt in this lifetime I will realize the Dhamma. I had no idea what I was talking about. But that kind of faith is not dependent on knowledge. That kind of faith is dependent on your heart being touched in a way that you recognize and is inspired by and has some clarity of the path ahead. It's, you know when you're making a picture, you're putting together a picture puzzle, you know, 10,000 pieces picture puzzle, and you look at the picture and there's all these things, and the first thing you do is you you put the outline, you build the outline, right? As soon as you get the outline completed, okay, got it, okay. Now it's just a matter of time and you're gonna fit it all in. But until you get that outline, it's a little bit daunting. It was like that. The first retreat was like that. It was like, okay, got it. I see the picture. I see the shape of the picture. I see the task ahead. I got it. I know there's a lot of pieces to fill in, but I'm confident it can be done. That's what faith feels like. There's that kind of assurance, confidence, inspiration, Uh, based on some personal experience. It's not just, I wish it was so, it's like you really do feel it, that there's some clarity in uh, what you're doing or what you're choosing to do. And there's a confidence to proceed, a confidence to just take the next step, without knowing how many steps the journey will demand. But you're willing to take the next step, and that's what faith—that's how faith supports us, or that's how sada. Faith is not—not not really quite the right word for sada, but it's what sada does for us. It supports taking the next step to just keep moving in the direction of our aspiration. It's not so much that it's goal-oriented. We're not trying to reach for some particular experience or some particular aha moment or anything like that but you know the direction you're going or you know the direction you want to go. And while we fail miserably a lot of the time and we're off the path, we're heading in the wrong direction, nevertheless the clarity of the direction you need to go is there. And periodically we realign ourselves with that direction and keep going. Traditionally, the objects of faith are the Buddha, knowing about the Buddha, the Dharma, hearing the Dharma or understanding the Dharma, or getting a glimpse of the Dharma, the profundity of the Dharma, or the Sangha, knowing someone, feeling inspired by their life, or their way of life, or their aspiration. But it can be really faith in anything related to the Dharma. And I think for me, it was not, not so much that I didn't, I didn't really know the Buddha, I didn't know anything about the Buddha, other than what I heard in a few Dharma talks, or the Dharma, I certainly didn't know much of that, and I didn't know any Sangha. But for me, it was the practice, as difficult as it is to, as it was to sit, and to try to be mindful, something about that as the thing to be done, Really, I got it. I got it. That's that's it. That's what's got to be done. And for eight years, that was my that was my sustaining understanding. This is what's got to be done. Sit down, take a look. And it wasn't books. I wasn't interested in reading books. And I didn't. I mean, I had a few Dhamma friends as a, after I got on the, to the meditation center, but. I just loved sitting and I don't don't mean it was easy or I liked what I saw, I just mean it was the first glimpse of relief I had of my tortured mind to sit down and just watch it. And sometimes there would be periods of stillness and calm and whatever and it was just such a relief to step out of the whirlwind really. Of course, the challenge to faith or confidence is doubt. But like I mentioned to Rodney after one retreat, I said, I have absolutely no doubt that uh, I will realize the Dharma. And I, I, I honestly have to say, I, never, I have not felt any doubt. I, I, I didn't know what it meant, but I still, I, I just, I never saw any doubt in my, in my mind. Of course, there were times when I wondered, oh God, can I do this? No, this, looks like, this looks like a major task, but I just did it. And there were other times I heard instructions or guidance from teachers and I didn't know what the heck they were talking about and I might have doubted them. Or uh, when I did hear the instructions and tried it, I might have had some questions like, is this for real? Is this, is this really how you're supposed to do that? I mean, is, is this it? But there were never any doubts that, you know, like big doubt like, okay, let me withdraw from this. I'm going to go back to the commune and really get it straight here. <laughs> it was never that kind of doubt. It was always just minor doubts. And I understand now that the path to unshakable confidence, meaning no doubt, isn't by inspiring yourself with the exploits or practices or teachings of others, but it's just noticing every filament of hesitation in your own mind. And just seeing that is just another place of practice. It's just whatever filament of questioning or doubt or hesitancy or self-evaluation or criticism whatever it is just say huh okay I see that and just keep practicing practicing through it not trying to solve it not trying to get around it just practicing with that not even trying to get rid of it and that I have discovered is the way to uh, overcome doubt because doubt (coughs) masquerades as rational logical problem solving thinking in the mind. You know and we try to you know we hear some Dharma and we look at our life and our life looks like a mess and so we try to figure it out. You can't figure it out. You can't figure out your life in terms of the Dharma. You can only practice the Dharma and your life will be figured out. And so periodically People come in and they're, they're really wound up in some one of the many, many paradoxes of the Dharma. I mean, the Dharma is just riddled with uh, paradox. How can this be and that be both? You know, and you can't figure it out. All you can do is recognize, oh, this is one of those questions that the Dharma asks and you can't answer and you have to keep practicing anyway. And in time, if you keep practicing, all your questions are answered, then you have no doubt. Then your confidence in the path, your confidence in yourself, the confidence in your teachers, the confidence in the value of the goal is unshakable. Not because you believe anybody else. You don't have to believe anything. You just have to do your own, see your own experience and then you know. but even with that faith even with that inspiration even with that initial you know calling forth to let me let me look at this let me go into the dharma let me try this practice it doesn't automatically condition or support the energy and effort that's needed to practice. Something else is needed in there. And that is the... We need a cause. We need a reason to make the effort. Faith itself supports effort. But why make the effort in the first place? And it's said that the proximate cause of energy Virya, this is the second of the five faculties. The proximate cause of Virya is a sense of urgency. You may think, oh yeah, the Dharma is great, but if there's no urgency in your life to acquire it, it can just sit on the shelf like an unread book. But periodically, things happen in our life that bring things to a point and there's a sense of urgency, there's an, a sense of, I got I to gotta get it together, <laughs> I got to get out of this, I got to see something, I got to change my ways, or whatever it is. And it's said that the, um, you know, the bodhisattva, who was Prince Siddhartha, living in his father's palaces, hidden from, from reality of life, when he went outside the palace, the safety of his father's protection, and he saw, meaning he really understood, momentarily, aging, sickness, and death. When he saw it, when he grokked it, when he got it, that this is the human condition, he was stricken with this urgency to find a way out of that kind of suffering. Well, that's pretty high bar of suffering. Let's just look at some of our own suffering. You know, I mean, sometimes we just reach this place in our life where our life just isn't working well. It's going along in the way that we've learned and the way that we've developed and the way that is acceptable to us and our family and friends and whatnot, but it's not working. It just doesn't work for us inside anymore. Our heart, our mind is not being nourished. Maybe we're financially secure, maybe we're physically healthy, maybe we have a loving uh, domestic relationship, family, whatever it is, and yet it doesn't work. There's something missing and we know it. We can't fool ourselves. We can't be deceived, we can't be misled. And when that understanding grips your heart, more of the same is not enough. So after I'd been practicing retreats like this for eight years, and I was doing, you know, I was on the staff and I was on the board of directors, and I'd been the executive director of the retreat center and started Dharma Tape Library back in 81 or something. I was doing one of my annual retreats, after eight years, just kind of coming to do another retreat. And about three, four days into the retreat, I had this dream. And in this dream, this image of uh, an old woman uh, with just a skeleton face in a shroud over her head, said to me, face to face, most important moment of your life is when you die. That was it. That was it. That was like my life no longer worked. Nothing about it was satisfying. It was just, I got it. It touched me in a way that was like no questions. And I didn't really know what to do with it, but it didn't take me long to figure out that the only thing I knew to do was more practice. Because more money, and more cars, and more a nicer house, and a better pet. And, <laughs> it's just not going to do it. It's just not. And I was young enough then to just say, well, I'm done with this. And off to Asia I went, because that's the only thing I knew what to do. I, only, I just knew that practice wasn't satisfying yet, but nothing else was either, and practice offered the best opportunity. So there was a sense of urgency. And it wasn't like I thought I was going to die. It wasn't, it wasn't that. It was more like an urgency to get the Dharma into my heart. And you know, the fuel for going, the understanding I had for going to Asia to practice was I wanted to practice until I didn't want to practice anymore. And I didn't know how long that was going to take. I thought it was about a year. <laughs> maybe a year and a half. You know when When the Dharma hooks you, you go whether you want to or not. You know, it just takes you and that sense of urgency is commanding. If you can hear it, if you can hear what your heart is saying. And for me that sense of urgency was uh, just trying to find a way out of this this way of life I was living that was by all conventional standards successful but inwardly was dead. It just wasn't working. And that wasn't good enough. I was willing to risk everything to find that whatever the Dharma hinted at, whatever practice hinted at, I was willing to invest everything to that. And so, with that kind of urgency, when I went to Burma, I was on fire to, to get it. Whatever is gettable, I was, I was there to get it. And energy was not a problem. I had the, the faith, I had the urgency, and I had the energy. I had too much energy, actually. I was too strident really in my effort. I was so on fire and so enthusiastic and so determined that I strove too hard. Or I should say, I strove unskillfully. You know, they say, you go to the monastery and it says, you can sleep four hours a night between 11 and 3. The rest of the time is alternate hours of sitting and walking. Get on with it. Oh, only four hours? No problem. You know, and when, you know, and when four hours was enough, I said, "Well, I don't need to sleep four hours," and I just ratcheted down. Whatever, I, I took a vow. After a few months, I said, "Wake up, get up, don't even look at the clock, just get up. When you wake up, get up. It, don't wait for the bell to ring, just get up." Well, three or three or four of those years, it was only an hour, an hour and a half a night, but well, you don't get sick. I mean, when you're on fire, nothing to stop you, and while that was good for practice, I was still not very balanced in my effort. One time I, you know, they say sit an hour, walk an hour, well I figured if sitting an hour is good, sitting an hour and a half has got to be better, right? Wrong. Wrong view. So, but nevertheless, I just said, well, if an hour is good, I'll sit an hour and a half. So I said an hour and a half. If an hour and a half is good, two must be better. Set for two, set for three, set for four. I was just sitting longer and longer and longer. And of course, every day when I go to report to Sadhu Bandit, I'd say, oh, I sat two and a half hours, I sat four hours, I sat four and a half hours. And then I'd given this elaborate, detailed description of exquisite pain. <laughs> Yeah, after a few weeks of this, he says to me one time, he says, he says, you know, uh, <clears throat> you know why you have so much pain? I was all ears. I was ready for the, the drop of wisdom into my open heart. Tell me about pain. He says, you sit too long. <laughs> <laughs> Duh. I mean, you know, I, too much effort, too much enthusiasm can be really unbalanced and not skillful. In addition, most of Saido's translators, they were just, anybody who could speak some English would be pulled in that day to translate. Sometimes we had great translators, sometimes we had terrible (laughs) translators, but all of them translated something he said as, please try harder. (laughs) I'm already busting my butt, you know, I'm sleeping nothing, I'm sitting hours, please try harder, what are you talking about? How can I do that? So, harder to me meant, hunch your shoulders, furrow your brow, clench your fists, grit your teeth, bear down, pain. (laughs) It took a few years to figure out that that wasn't the right way to do it, but... You do have to have a sense of urgency. We do have to make an effort. Ramana Maharshi says, and Ramana Maharshi, you know, he's one of these guys that got in line when he was, what, 14? Felt like he was dying one day when he was 13 or 14, laid down on the floor, let go of everything. End of job. That's it. And he goes on to say, no one succeeds without effort. (laughs) (laughs) Mind at peace is not your birthright. Those who succeed owe their liberation to perseverance. And this really is a better understanding of right effort persevering effort. It's not tight, it's not demanding, it's not strident. it's not gripping, it's just persevere. One moment after the next. And that really, I mean that's is uh understanding too. He says, it's not difficult to be aware or mindful. It is difficult to maintain it continuously. And for this you need right effort which is simply, perseverance. Okay, it's not difficult to be mindful. It's difficult to maintain it continuously. And for this you need persevering energy. So when we can remember how easy it is, really, to acknowledge the present moment's experience, that's all it is, it's just, can you acknowledge the present moment's experience? What do you feel in the body? What's going on in the mind? What do you notice in the environment? That's it. From wake up till sleep, (laughs) that's the challenge. But we can see that, I'm sure you can see, even today, periods of time when we remember what right effort is, and lots of times when we don't, and we just try all kinds of effortful, or lackadaisical attempts to do something other than just acknowledge the present moment. Nevertheless, that's our challenge. And the challenge of making all this effort, supported by faith, is to be aware, to be mindful. Now I mentioned the other morning that the uh, function Of mindfulness as a capacity of the mind, the function of mindfulness, or mindfulness functions to remember. To remember this present moment. This is it. This present moment is the only moment you have. Everything from the past is just a thought in the mind. Everything. Everything in the future is just a thought in the mind. All we really have is this present moment. And so often we forget it. Mindfulness is that capacity of the mind that remembers it. And it's not any particular experience in the present moment. It's not like it's got to be the breath or it's got to be the posture or it's got to be physical sensations. It's anything in the present moment, whatever your attention has alighted upon. And so we use the breath as a, as a tool, as a technique. We use noting as a tool, as a technique. We use all kinds of things to support remembering. But it's the, it's the function of remembering that we need to activate. And this is mindfulness. In a moment of mindfulness there are two elements. There is the knowing of something. Something has arisen due to its own causes and conditions. It can be the breath, it can be a sound, it can be a sensation in the body, none of which we control, none of which we can make happen at will for as long or as little as we wish. It just happens. And um, did you ever wonder why, out of everything that's happening in any particular moment, why your mind chooses that thing that it chooses? Why that thing? Why that thought? Why that sensation? Why that memory? Why, why that? That's not for us to answer. Mm-hmm. But it's for us to see. This is what the, this is what the mind has landed on. Or this is what has arisen in the mind to call the attention, and that's what's to be recognized. But in all of this recognition of all of this variety of experience, the most important element of it all is the remembering and the knowing of it. What arises, we have seen, is going to change endlessly. It's going to be a sight, a sound, a thought, a memory, a plan, a this, a that. And it's just going to go on like that for a while more. What we're doing with this practice is recognizing and remembering the aw- the awareness of it, the knowing of it. What is being known is going to change. Whether we choose the object or something randomly appears, let it happen. But in every moment, there's a knowing. That's what we're paying attention to. That's what we're cultivating. This recognition of the knowing. Remembering that this is the only moment of life, right here. And when we miss this moment, we didn't live it. We didn't live it. You weren't if you're not there for it, how can you confirm that you were alive? You cannot. It's like those long wandering thoughts that we get into, or hopefully they're shorter now. Those short wandering thoughts that we get into. You have no idea. We have no idea that we're even alive. We're certainly not remembering the present moment, we're not aware of anything. What's the difference between that and being dead? little bit here and there throughout the day but mindfulness is this ability to 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 remember and to taste the flavor of the present moment and to recognize it to really taste it to really get all there is out of this moment of life and that is the taste of it other than that what is there it's a memory it's a plan It's some imagined future. Paradise elsewhere, as Galway Canal calls it. Just not satisfied with this, looking for paradise somewhere else. Having said all that, there are so many wrong ways to understand mindfulness. There has been so much said about, so much written about, Mindfulness and how to, when to, where to, why to, that it is easy. It's hard to remember how simple it is. That mindfulness, the function of mindfulness is to remember to notice the present moment. That's it. That's it. More than that, yeah, there's a lot of support for that. You know, and, and even Pandita says he could talk about mindfulness forever. Joseph has just given 43 44 talks on mindfulness and you know there's there's a lot to be said but it really is not difficult to understand it's it's difficult to do in a sustained way but if we let our minds complicate preference for complication get in there and <coughs> muck it up we'll have a really difficult time so it, it as I've mentioned previously on the retreat, it is essential to try to keep it as simple as possible. Keep your practice as simple as possible. What are we trying to do here? Remember to recognize the present moment. When we do, there is a... it's just a settling onto the present moment and a tasting of a knowing of it. If that easeful presence and continuity of remembering can be sustained for a period of time, the mind gets collected. It's as if the mind that is, Scattered to the past and the present and the future and fantasies and, and just all It's just all over the place. You know the mind is just racing around Hanging on to things in the past imagining things in the future elsewhere other people Fantasies, it's just, it's just scattered But if we can keep bringing it back to just this just this just this just and it doesn't and it can be a different this every moment this, just this, just this. Gradually, the mind calms down. It collects. It coalesces on the present moment. More of the mind is available to land on the present moment, to taste the present moment, to be there for it. This is called the collectedness of the mind. Gradually, through the continuity of mindful moments, the mind gets collected from all of these other places, other things that are pulling it out. And we bring it in, we bring it home, we bring it back to present moment, present moment, present moment. And when the mind gets collected, it gets powerful. It's like light. When it gets collected in a magnifying glass or a microscope, it gets really powerful. And you can see so much more detail through a powerful lens than otherwise. Same with the mind. As the mind gets collected, it gets more powerful. So that when you look at familiar experience, like oh, your relationship with your domestic partner, for example, you see so much more detail of what is going on there. Good luck. (laughs) that's what happens. We see the ordinary, we see the familiar, we see the usual stuff of our life, but we see it with much greater clarity and in much more detail. In addition, as I've mentioned a few times in the retreat, mindfulness is always accompanied by this quality of non-deception. It sees things as they really are. Meaning, we can't tell ourselves a story about it, we can't put our spin on it, we can't rationalize it to fit our sense of ourselves or what we hope it'll be. We see it, this is, this is the way it is. Period. And if something's painful, you see, well this is painful. No matter how you'd like to explain it as being necessary or valuable or important or good or beneficial or whatever, if it's painful, it's painful. If it's suffering, it's suffering. That's it. And we see it. And there's no, there's no, we can't lie to ourselves when mindfulness is developed. We see things nakedly. And this is what can be so shocking on retreat. Sometimes what we see is so clear and so vivid and so undeniable. And it's not what we thought, it's not what we believed, it's not how we've seen ourselves or anyone else. And it, 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 it leaves us with this tremendous issue, this tremendous problem. Now we have to integrate our understanding with the way we have thought they are. The way we have thought they are. And that's, 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 work. that's work. But this is the place of practice where mindfulness sees suffering. It understands this is suffering but there's not yet enough wisdom to know how to understand it and let go. And so a large part of practice, I'm sorry to say, is clear recognition of suffering, no relief in sight. <laughs> <laughs> because the, the wisdom is just not there. The, we just don't have the skillful way of understanding it yet in order to be free of that suffering. As the mind is collected and as it sees more clearly this is this is the way things are, this is the way it is. The stable mind or the collected mind, the concentrated mind, the Buddha said one who is concentrated knows and sees things as they really are. This is what the Buddha said. One who is concentrated knows and sees things as they really are. It is then the task of wisdom to understand that. To understand, to look at what is seen, and what you know to be the way it is and to understand it in a way that leads to the end of suffering. The mind, it is as if the mind will try to believe anything to get away from suffering. It'll put any spin it can think of on (laughs) your story to try to get away from suffering. But mindfulness is not going to let you. It is going to insist on seeing things skillfully, meaning seeing this as, and how how to see this without suffering. So, a lot of practice, just, just to step back a minute, a lot of practice feels very restless, anxious, it's very upsetting, it can be uh, struggling, it can be it it can be really just pretty agitating, uh, just what we see and, and how we have to handle it. But this collectedness of mind occurs when we're happy. So just getting wound up and getting into a real froth about what we see is not the path to wisdom. It happens, but that's not the path to wisdom. And so we do learn, do have to learn, how to handle all these defilements. And that is the task of mindfulness. Because even when the defilements arise, if we can be mindfully aware of them, they weaken. We're not entangled in them. We see them, but we're not entangled in them, and they weaken. This is the way to handle the defilement. There are many ways to temporarily uh, put them aside, uh, get rid of them, to, to escape from them, when they're overwhelming particularly. And we want to learn how to do that. But ultimately, to gain the wisdom of liberation, understand, skillful understanding, we are going to need to understand the defilements. Not just seek a temporary relief. I'm not minimizing that, I'm just saying that's the limitation, temporary relief is temporary relief. Insight leads to skillful understanding, which is liberation. So we want to <laughs> be willing, as Saito Tejaniya encourages us to, to really look at and in order to learn from the defilements, whatever is causing you distress, whatever the kind of distress it is, frustration, disappointment, anger, rage, jealousy, fear, depression, despair, hopelessness, whatever it is, That needs to be looked at, that needs to be. To be mindful of that will begin to tame it, will begin to disentangle your sense of self from it. Then, as the Buddha said, for one who's collected, for one who's concentrated, they see things as they really are. And in that seeing, there is a growing understanding Of this that is seen and eventually it will arrive at uh, the skillful way of understanding every experience so that we do not suffer. How does this happen? Well one of the first things we do is through repeated exposure to our reactive mind. You know we get we get caught in reactions time and time again of anger and fear and whatever through repeated exposure to that which provokes those reactive states of mind, we gradually get it. This doesn't work. You know, and we begin to have a more balanced, as Kamala spoke last night about equanimity, a more balanced, less reactive, not passive, relationship to the things of life. This equanimity is essential, so the, the immediate path of practice takes us to uh, greater non-reactivity, greater equanimity, more balance in our mind. Even, while, even Even when there isn't liberating understanding, still we can have more balance, less reactivity. But in time, insight arises, and this is the fifth of the spiritual faculties, wisdom. Now there are many kinds of wisdom, and I've spoken about many of them in trees. my room, in the dormitory where I was living. And I remember I was stepping, I was walking in that direction toward the bathroom, and I was doing my walking, and it came to me that I was caught in this, oh, poor me, mentality. And it was no doubt, I was really caught in this defeated, seen that state of mind before I'd never seen it. if anybody had ever asked me oh poor you I was always confident energetic is that I, I never got caught by it anymore. I, I never see self-pity anymore. Never, no, matter, no matter how bad it gets. You know. And for those of you who know the, the, the process we've been through in Maui to get our water meters, to get our building permits, and things like that, and 12 years of, you know, it's like, self-pity was not a state of mind. Whatever it is that you get entangled in in your mind, your life challenging. whatever story you're telling yourself about the difficulties of your life or how hard it is or how impossible it is or why you're not yet happy or content or whatever whatever your story is it's just a story it's just a story that is fueled by a mental state of course that we're habituated to that we don't see yet we don't see consistently and we might know the story, we might know even know what the flavor is, but we're not free of it. Mindfulness will free you from it, because mindfulness of it will show you how it works, what you get out of it, what, you, you know, what you've invested in, what you get out of it. And you see, this state of mind is just a momentarily arisen set of conditions that, you know you can catch it every time. You know it's not who you really are. You know it's not part of you. It just arises adventitiously due to conditions. And when you know that, when you see that, you, you don't have to get caught there. This is the process of insight. You see that this is impermanent state of mind. You see that it's not really you. And you see that no matter how satisfying it has been in your personal history to resort to that state of mind it is no longer satisfying. You really see, this doesn't work. No matter how successful it's been to get what you want in life, in every other field of your life, it doesn't work here. At first, that's kind of, you know, it's like, wow, too bad. <laughs> you know, But actually, it's the doorway to freedom. Because if it doesn't work, you have to let go. You have to let go of that tactic, that strategy, that final resort where you go and hide, and you let that take over in your life. And you can't. Mindfulness will show you that. You don't have to look far. Right? You know, you can all, you can, you all, you all have seen it today. You've all seen your own mind today. You've seen the stories in your mind today. You know the stories that's causing you suffering. Just pick one, any one, that's the one. If you make that the target of your awareness and just never miss, just catch it every time, you can be free. All you have to do is be free once, and you're free forever. When you see the end of that habit, when you see it just once, then your mind knows how to get there. And then it's just a matter of doing it over and over and over again. These defilements can be not only temporarily subdued, not only understood, they can be uprooted from the mind. Uprooted. That means no more roots, never to grow again, no matter how supportive the conditions for it. Uprooted. You know, when you pull a pull a plant out by the roots, everything except weeds, they stop growing. The defilements of the weeds, they keep coming back, <laughs> until you get every last filament. Then, it's like roundup, they don't come back, you know, the Buddha said, you know, and, and you really, it's, it's helpful to hear this and to, to consider whether you believe it. The defilements can be uprooted from the mind, they can be literally removed from the mind. Never to arise again. Buddha said so. It's true. These are the five qualities of the mind. The five, ac- five activities of mind. The factors. The controlling activities of mind that guide our dharma unfolding. That guide our. Walk on this path of liberation. That let us know, gradually, uh, sequentially, that we're, we're practicing uh, skillfully, and we are gradually uh, liberating the mind from its uh, suffering, its causes of it suffering. When we practice, whether it's doing retreat or daily practice, and for one year, five years, ten years, twenty years eventually this awareness, the development and the activity of all these faculties, becomes a lifestyle. It's the way we live. We live with